Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The annual death toll from incidents on the world's roads has for years remained at more than a million. Yet authorities aren't using the tools they already have to save lives. We look at how the curious interplay of policy and development impact the road to improvement. And earlier this month, Australia's National Gallery closed because of bushfire smoke. As in just about every other sector facing climate change, the custodians of culture will have to prepare for more frequent and more damaging disasters. But first... Yesterday, Germany hosted an international conference aimed at bringing peace and stability to Libya. Foreign actors said they would again respect an arms embargo. But after nine months of intense fighting, the summit failed to secure a lasting ceasefire. The conflict in Libya has festered ever since Muammar Gaddafi was toppled in 2011. Roger McShane is our Middle East editor. Today, on one side, you have the UN-backed government in Tripoli. On the other, you have Khalifa Heftar, a renegade commander who controls much of the east and south of the country and many of the country's oil fields. In reality, both sides are really just collections of militias, and both draw heavily on foreign support. The Tripoli government is backed by Turkey, and Heftar is backed by Egypt, the UAE, and Russia. And as things stand on the ground, Heftar's forces are knocking on the doors of Tripoli, But they have been since April, and the front lines aren't really moving that much. So that was the situation on the ground leading into these talks in Berlin. It's a standoff that has again drawn the attention of Western powers who had taken a step back from the turmoil. But the diplomacy in Berlin didn't go as far as it could have. The sides did not agree to a ceasefire, and and that's a big deal. But the foreign powers that back each side did agree to stop arming the combatants, which is to say they've agreed to stop ignoring a decades-old arms embargo put in place by the UN. And that is meant to start the longer negotiation over a peace deal. And will that work? Will that actually get closer to peace, do you think? You know, it's the most hopeful thing to happen in Libya in some time, and yet I'm not very hopeful at all. Each side has just too much at stake here. You know, start with the foreign powers. You look at Vladimir Putin. He's trying to build on his success in Syria, extend his influence in the eastern Mediterranean, and he thinks by backing Khalifa Heftar, that's the best way to do it. Now, Turkey, on the other side, has even more on the line, which is why it sent troops to Tripoli this month. Before all the chaos, Turkish construction companies were heavily involved in Libya to the tune of something like $20 billion. It would undoubtedly play a big role in rebuilding where peace ever to break out in Libya. And it signed a maritime border deal in November with the government in Tripoli. That gives Turkey a decisive say in gas exploration in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, these construction contracts, that border deal... 
These are things that get ripped up if Heftar wins. So Turkey has a lot on the line in backing the government in Tripoli. And let me just say a word about Heftar here, because he is the definition of a spoiler. I mean, he's the reason why you don't have much hope for Libya. He's completely uncompromising, believes Libya needs a strong man, and of course, that it should be him. He walked out of a conference in Moscow the other week, and he was said to be acting you know, in the same usual stubborn way in Berlin. He did not meet with Fayez al-Saraj, the prime minister of the government in Tripoli. And on Sunday, his forces closed down two big oil fields in the southwest of the country. That was an attempt to show what kind of leverage he still holds over the government in Tripoli. And so why has this come to a head now? I mean, General Haftar's moves have been going on for some time, and now it looks like there is this grand international push for reconciliation. Yeah, I mean, I think European countries have gotten more involved now because they see things getting out of control, and they really want to stop that from happening. And they want to do that because it's in their own interest to keep the conflict from really spiraling. Their biggest concern is really migrants, and Libya had become a jumping-off point for African migrants heading across the Mediterranean to Europe. And there has been a downturn in the flow since 2017 when Italy got more involved. And I think now they don't want to see another uptick. And that's why you're seeing more action from France, Italy and Germany. Also, like Turkey, France and Italy have big energy interests in Libya. And until now, that has actually put them sort of on opposite sides of of the conflict. But recently, they seem to be singing more from the same hymn book. And I think it's also for Germany and for Europe, a test case of whether they can take a leading role in world diplomacy. And so that's what the Berlin talks are all about. You also saw at these talks, the European Union's foreign policy chief even hinted that Europe might be willing to put troops on the ground if they were able to negotiate a peace deal. And what about the Libyan people themselves? What do they make of all this jockeying for power and the international interest? I mean, Libyans, they really just want the fighting to stop. That was the main sense I got when I was in Tripoli last year. People are just tired of a decade of chaos and instability. But they also see weakness in the Tripoli government. I mean, Fayez al-Saraj, the prime minister, he is hostage to the militias who are supporting him. He doesn't have any real power. And so many seem resigned to the idea that Libya can only be ruled by a strongman. And they're not so much rooting for Khalifa Heftar. They just want it all to be over and think that Heftar will eventually come out on top. And what about the prospect of Mr. Haftar coming out on top? As you say, he's entirely uncompromising and seems to be the spoiler for, you know, multiple sets of talks here. How does this play out if he's just simply not going to play the game? I mean, you see this sort of grinding siege of Tripoli. And, you know, I don't think he can sort of win this war on his own. He's been at the gates of Tripoli since April. So he needs foreign help. It all comes down to whether sort of Russia continues backing him and sort of how involved Turkey actually gets on the side of the UN-backed government in Tripoli. If the foreign powers keep to the agreement reached in Berlin, then you could see an end to this quite quickly. I don't foresee that happening. I think this war is going to go on for some time yet, and I think the foreign powers are going to get more involved from here after perhaps a momentary lull on the back of the Berlin conference. Roger, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. 
that's the whole premise of Money Wise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called Money Wise. That's one word, Money Wise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find Money Wise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Every 25 seconds, someone dies on the world's roads. Annually, that's over 1.2 million people, more than are killed by malaria or HIV and AIDS. That striking total has hardly moved since the turn of the century. But it disguises a lot of change, both for better and for worse, in individual countries. There seems to be a sort of relationship between development and road death. Joel Budd is our social policy editor. He's been to Thailand to meet some of those who bear the personal cost of these tragedies. Thailand has more or less the highest road death rate of any country with half-decent statistics. There's a lot of drink driving in Thailand. It's not shameful to go to a bar and have three or four beers and then get behind the wheel of a car or get on your motorbike. Uh, Lots of people don't wear helmets. And the roads are very smooth. And as a result, you can go along them pretty quickly. As part of my reporting for this, I, I went to Bangkok. And one of the people I went to see was the mother of a girl called Hataipat Tantasirin who about a year ago was crossing the road near her school when she was hit by a motorbike rider and a few days later she died of her injuries. And you say in Thailand that is not an uncommon story? No, it's not at all. So the girl's mother teaches in a small private school and when I went to see her, they had just come back from holidays and she said that a child had turned up on the, on the very first day with a, with a serious head injury. And she asked this boy, how did you get that? And he said, oh, I was, you know, I was in a road accident. And one of her fellow teachers didn't turn up at all. And this was because um, she had been walking along the side of the road when she was hit by a motorbike and uh, was knocked down and she injured her shoulder and her head quite badly. So why is it that there is this relationship between development and road deaths? Well, in very, very poor countries, quite often there simply aren't very many roads. So a country like Liberia, for example, just has sort of only two really long roads. So many people will live an enormously long distance from a road. And the roads that do exist are washed out in the rainy season and extremely bumpy even in the dry season. As countries become wealthier, they just build more roads and and more people can afford motorbikes and cars. And so the roads become busier and then they become flatter, smoother and faster. And essentially, the faster people go, the more serious crashes are. And uh, it's when countries reach roughly upper middle income status that usually they start to get more serious about road safety and start to bring the death rate down. Well, I mean, there's more to it in the sort of east-west and and rich-poor divide here in that there are still plenty, plenty of people dying, for example, on American roads every day. Is is there not a conflict here? Yes, America's record is is not incredibly impressive. Um, So America in the mid-20th century was really a pioneer of bringing down road deaths. It was the first country to really go very heavily 
for uh, reflective painted lines on on roads. And that made a huge difference. And many other countries then uh, copied America. But the road death rate in America each year is something like 13 out of every 100,000 people are killed. Uh, that's, I mean, that's about half Thailand, but it's about double Singapore. And, and it's more than double the best European countries. So it's really quite a bit worse than Ireland, Sweden. Uh, Britain is very low. Why is that? It's partly just that Americans drive a long way. So the Australian road death rate is also quite high. They're just spread out countries, very suburban. People, people routinely drive, you know, long, long distances. It, it, but um, nonetheless, in America, there has been a bit of an uptick in the last few years. And it's a bit of a puzzle. I mean, certainly America is not as determined as some European countries are to really crush the road death rate. So Sweden has a policy of trying to reduce the road death rate to zero. That's not possible. But in going about it, Sweden is really thinking incredibly hard about how to make their roads safer. And America doesn't have that objective and is not trying as hard to do so. And so essentially the, the peak of the curve is, is in middle-income countries. Yes, quite often it is. They often seem to peak in sort of lower middle-income status. So it looks like, for example, that India's road death rate, which had been increasing, seems to have been decreasing for about the last five years. China's death rate has been going down since sort of the early 2000s or thereabouts. Is there something that the countries that do want to do something about this can do? Is it a matter of simply training people better? Yeah, strangely, training seems to make kind of amazingly little difference. Some kinds of training, like um, advanced driver training, actually seem to be counterproductive. They make people into more dangerous drivers because they convince them that they're better. Other things have a much, much bigger effect. For example, uh, checking vehicles every year to see if the tires and are okay and the brakes are working. And uh, making sure people wear helmets if they're riding motorbikes and seatbelts if they're, if they're riding in cars. All of those things, sort of very, very simple things, matters of conformity, not matters of skill, are much, much more important. So, so what about the, the broader outlook here then? If the overall number of road deaths seems to be flat, but countries jostling within that, that aggregate number... How do you see this playing out as, as, you know, technology gets better, as sort of awareness of these issues gets better, as car safety itself gets better? The road death rate really ought to be coming down fairly steeply, I think. Cars and motorbikes are better. You know, they, it, it's, it's very common now to have ABS brakes. Cars have electronic stability systems. You know, airbags are now fairly common. And these sorts of technologies are permeating middle income and even sometimes poor countries. And also just healthcare is better. There are, there are more trauma centers, you know, our awareness of how to treat people who've been in an accident is just better than it was. So even though there are more people on the roads, I think that the, the rate sort of ought to be coming down quicker than it is. And so it's sort of a disappointment, I think, to people in this field that it isn't. Joel, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. It's clear that wildfires like those that have ravaged Australia recently are exacerbated by climate change. 
Hot weather and drought make fires more likely to happen and more devastating when they do. And alongside the danger to wildlife, homes, and human lives, some of Australia's cultural history is also at risk. Earlier this month, for the first time, the National Gallery in Canberra had to close due to smoke, saying that it endangered the public, staff, and even the artworks themselves. Now, around the world, museums are working out how to protect their own irreplaceable artifacts from a changing environment. Because of climate change, rising sea levels, more frequent wildfires and storms are putting a lot of the world's greatest and most precious artefacts at risk. Rachel Dobbs reports for The Economist. So the Louvre flooded in July 2017, which damaged a very well-known painting, ironically enough, called The Four Seasons. The Uffizi Gallery in Florence had to close during a heat wave. During the biennial in Venice last year, there was very heavy flooding, which meant that some of the exhibitions had to be closed down and volunteers had to salvage artefacts from various places. So as these weather events and disasters become more extreme and more frequent, these objects are increasingly at risk. But as you say, other uh, infrastructure is is at risk. I mean, what can museums specifically do to, to protect what they're supposed to protect? So museums are actually ahead of the game in this respect and have been for a long time because they have always had to think so carefully about how to look after the objects that are in their care. International organisations, which have been running for a while, help museums prepare for disasters and guide them in what they should do. There is the organisation Blue Shield, which is kind of described as the cultural equivalent of the Red Cross. So after a disaster, they would come in and help institutions remove their artefacts, restore them, that kind of thing. But they also help with the planning for those kind of evacuations and making sure that museums and art collections know what to do. There's also the International Council of Museums, which is the body that kind of oversees and helps with all aspects of cultural heritage preservation. And they very recently in November established a committee for disaster resilient museums. So the aim of that committee is teaching museums how they can make themselves better protected to disasters such as floods or wildfires. And so in that sense, there are already museums out there that have have made the changes, have prepared themselves for what seems now inevitable. Yes, there are definitely museums that have prepared incredibly well for the impacts that climate change might bring, particularly because they've got a lot to lose. So a great example is the Getty Center in Los Angeles, which, because there have been years of wildfires in California, but they have worked incredibly hard to make the Getty Center essentially fireproof. So the walls are all made from limestone and cement and steel. The rooftops are all of crushed stone, which is not flammable. The works are housed within sort of self-contained modules. It's like a building within a building and have air systems which will keep smoke out because smoke is one of the things that can be damaging to artwork and artefacts. So if there is a wildfire raging, they just can completely shut it down, circulate the air themselves and make sure that nothing gets damaged. The extent to which the Getty is now fireproof is so strong that their social media people released a blog saying why the Getty is the safest place in California during a fire, during the wildfires. There's also the Whitney Museum of American Art, which is in New York. After Hurricane Sandy, which is in 2012, which was actually the time at which the Whitney was being built, 
the museum decided that it had to take the risk of flooding incredibly seriously. It sits on the banks of the Hudson River, which does make it particularly vulnerable. And so it has been built essentially as a fortress to withstand several metres of flood water. There is a 7,000 kilogram flood door, which was designed by the engineers who make the hatches on US Navy warships, which can withstand a storm bashing up against it and also any of the things that a storm might throw at it, such as, you know, a truck that is floating down at high speed. I mean, that's that's all well and good for big and established and well-endowed museums, but, you know, that that's not all museums. No, it's not. And whilst these museums are doing a fantastic job, there is a real worry that the implementation of this kind of disaster planning will be uneven because the institutions that have less money find it much harder to put up these kind of defences. There are also, obviously, cultural institutions that are spread out over large areas, such as the biennial in Venice. It will be very hard to protect all of that from something like flooding. And yeah, there's a real worry that small poor institutions and cultural sites will be disproportionately damaged, which is both ironic and really sad, because often those are the places that have the heritage of poorer or indigenous communities who themselves are more at risk of climate change. Rachel, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.